Zephaniah. Uh, we're going to be finishing our study in Zephaniah tonight. <clears throat> I'm excited to wrap up this book. Uh, Zephaniah saved the best for last, and that's what we're going to be studying tonight. Uh, so I hope you can get excited about it as well. Uh, before we start into the book, I just want to uh, take a second to think about what, what we dream of, what we hope for in this life. Uh, we all have different ideas of things that we hope to accomplish, things that we hope for our children to accomplish, things that we want to see at some point in our life. And, and once we have accomplished it, what ends up happening? Uh, a lot of times, uh, whenever we accomplish some goal or some mission in life, uh, we're left with, was that it? You know, <laughs> There's some satisfaction to it, but then at the end, we're just... I don't know. We were hoping for more. And then we have to figure out what to go after next, right? We have hopes, we have dreams in this life uh, that we're going to continue to pursue over and over again. When we accomplish one, there's always something else to accomplish. Hopefully, uh, we're, we're all, we all have positive goals in our lives and things that we want to see happen. Our worldly dreams and expectations may become a big letdown to us. We may not, uh, after reaching the pinnacle of success, look at everything in our life and think, wow, that was all worth it. (laughs) But there is a hope that we have that whenever we're there, whenever that hope is realized, that we will look back and see that everything was more than worth it. We will see that this hope will not let us down. And that's the eternal hope that God tells us about throughout the prophets. And in Zephaniah, that's the hope that we're going to be looking at this evening as we study together. Zephaniah takes a big spotlight and reveals to us the hope that we have in God. God desires to give us a heavenly home when this life is over. And and He shares that with us in this book. And that's one of the many reasons why I love studying the prophets, because this kind of information is revealed to us in such great detail. So we're going we're gonna to study through the last part of Zephaniah tonight, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Uh, if you remember last time, there wasn't a whole lot of hope. Everything was looking pretty bad for all mankind. Remember, uh, he starts off discussing how God is going to wipe the slate clean. He's going to take out all the creatures, all mankind. Everyone's going to get taken out on this day of judgment that he talks about. And he specifically mentions his own people will be judged. He will judge even Israel in this judgment. And, And... they, it turns out, are equally as guilty of sin as the rest of the nation. And whenever we looked at that, we thought about how it's okay for God to give judgment. It's a good thing, actually, for God to give judgment. We want God to be the judge, for God to bring about justice on the earth. Otherwise, those who are weak and oppressed are going to suffer and, and, and no Correction is going to be made and, and things are going to spiral out of control to where we get to the point of Noah's day where everyone's thinking evil in their heart continually. 
And we don't want to live in that kind of society. So God shows us His his means of correction. He shows us He is in control, that He is going to bring about judgment as He brings the Babylonians in to wipe out major nations on the earth at that time. Nations that we don't hear about, we don't have around anymore. God wipes them out. And only those who humble themselves will remain. Remember that glimpse of hope in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 that He gave us. Those who seek after God, seek after humility, and seek after righteousness will remain after that judgment. Well, chapter 3, as we got to that chapter in verse 8, he again mentions the judgment of all the nations and that they will be consumed with uh, this judgment from the mighty warrior. He transitions from verse 8 into verse 9 to to completely change everything up. The, the, the whole flow has been about judgment. God's going to destroy. God's going to wipe everybody out into hope. Look with me at uh, verses 9 and 10. For at that time, the time that I will be judging and, and bring about all this devastation, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. In this text, God reveals His intentions to transform the peoples. God will transform them. He will will change them into the type of people who are able to worship God, able to call on His name with pure lips. That's God's intention, is to transform those who remain to have pure lips. And notice that this promise will reach beyond the rivers of Cush. That, to the people at that time, is the ends of the earth. His worshipers are going to come from all over to worship Him with pure lips. This promise is being pointed to all the nations. But it's also being promised to His people. Those who are Israel who will humble themselves and turn to God have the promise as well. As you keep reading in chapter 3 verse 11, On that day you, the NIV adds Jerusalem, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouths a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. As the text continues, he points to Israel and he repeats a lot of the same ideas, that they will be transformed, right? That they will have a transformed mouth. They won't speak lies or deceit. He's going to purge and purify the people. He's going to remove all those people who are exalting themselves, who are proud and boastful, and and whittle the nation down to a remnant. 
The idea of a remnant is often seen throughout the prophets. And that's what he's saying he will do on that day, at that time. And at the end it says, They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. This is the idea that God will give Israel rest. Graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid is a reference back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, right? The idea of a sheep who has been well fed, who is not afraid of the enemy, of the wolves, of the lions attacking him. He's able to lay down, he's able to find rest. And that's that has a lot to do with what God is trying to promise those remnant that survived the judgment. But he also tells them that their shame will be gone. This nation was shameless earlier. It's called the shameless nation. They're committing all kinds of evil and sin and they don't have a care in the world about it. They feel no shame. But they are going to have their shame removed. Their shame will be gone. Their haughty haughty and proud will be gone. The humble will seek refuge in the Lord and they will all be transformed and given rest. That's the idea of this text and what God is trying to show us He will do for His remnant. You continue in verse 14. He says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. This is, this is working off of the idea from verse 13. That you will graze and you will lie down. The idea that God will give you rest. This is describing to us what that rest will look like. We will be free to rejoice in the Lord. Rest means rejoicing. The text commands us to praise God because our judgments are removed. The remnant can praise God with singing. God is once again their King. And He also says... God is in their midst. This reference to God being in their midst goes back to Exodus when God wants to dwell among His people. It goes back even further than that to the garden where God walked with man and had a relationship with Him. There was a rest that was experienced by man in the garden and God is wanting to restore that rest. Isn't this a huge contrast to the rest of the book? God has been explaining His judgment. The fact that all these people should be very afraid because God is a mighty warrior who's about to wipe them all out. They're living lives in fear of the oppressive people around them and they're also now in fear of God who is going to be bringing about judgment. But now, after that, there's going to be rest for God's people. Look at the last section, verse 16 through 20. On that day, there's that phrase again, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. 
a mighty one who will save. That's mighty warrior in the NIV. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before you, says the Lord. Rest means rejoicing, but rest also means no fear. There's no fear because the mighty warrior who was once against us, the mighty warrior who was going to wipe us out, is now on our side. After we've humbly submitted to him, He is now on our side. He has also searched Jerusalem with lamps and wiped out all the oppressors, all the enemies, all the evil people. And now we are going to live without fear. Well, I got too excited. All right. We're back on track. I hit the wrong button. Now we can live without fear. We can't even imagine a world like this. Imagine, try to imagine walking the streets of Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or or any major city, even this city, the worst parts of town, just walking through those streets at night without a fear in the world. Imagine leaving your doors unlocked, canceling all your insurances. (laughs) Imagine the jails being empty. Imagine the police officers being retired because there's no crime. That's the image that God is giving us. It's an image of an existence that is paradise. That is the way things are supposed to be. God says that He will bring the remnant safely home. That's the way the NIV translates it. And restore their fortunes. That's what God wants to do for His remnant. That's how God wants to bless Mankind, if only they would accept the blessing that He offers. Now, as we study through the prophets, and we read about all the judgment that is against them, and then we read about these these blessings that are promised to a remnant that will survive, we always have the question, we've had it multiple times in class, we've discussed this, did Israel experience this type of restoration? It's obvious God wants to restore a remnant of Israel. And even the nations are mixed in there, right? He wants to restore them. He wants to bring them to complete peace, to complete security. When and how is He going to do this, right? That's what we want to know. What's revealed to us is... Restoration language in this text. Over and over again, we read phrases like, At that time. In those days, on that day, those phrases are always referring to a time of restoration. 
So whenever we start seeing those phrases, we usually find some information like this where God's going to bless a remnant of Israel, a remnant of the, of the nations after some judgment. The judgment itself always has this idea that then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will understand more about who I am. And it's always followed up with a promise of hope. But that hope is revealed to us as being the messianic age. When we go to the New Testament... And we study what the apostles say about the prophets and and these kinds of prophecies. What they tell us is that those days that were referred to back then are these days right now. The things that they promised have now happened and now we are enjoying those blessings to some level, to some extent. In Acts chapter 2, you have him referring to Joel and the prophecy of Joel saying in the latter days, right in the last days, and these are the days, he says. In chapter 3, verse 18 through 21, it says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, that's a reference to Isaiah's messianic language, he thus fulfilled, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. You see Him referring to this restoration idea and Him saying that the times of restoration, the times of refreshing are coming and and they're in the process. We're to pray for the times of refreshing to come. We're to repent for the times of refreshing to come. And God is going to bring about restoration. The way it's talked about is as though this is a process. This is something that is continually going on. God is continually working on mankind, restoring mankind to the relationship that was there in the beginning. Where God was able to walk with man. Where God knew man and man could have the opportunity to know God. That's what we talked about last time as we looked at 1 Peter. Uh, the prophets long ago were writing these things down wondering when and how these things were going to happen. And they were reve- what was revealed to them was the grace that was going to be given to us, to you, he says. So, does the restoration happen to Israel? Yeah, it started in Acts chapter 2. It started with Jesus coming to the earth, really. And it's continually going. The restoration is continually happening as God is drawing mankind to Him. To have a relationship with Him. So, what does all of this mean for us? What do we learn from this? Well, there's, there's three things that I think Zephaniah specifically helps us understand about what's going on. What's God's big picture? What's His point in all of this? First of all, obviously from... <coughs> I know it's going to need this. Obviously from the judgments, we understand that we're condemned people. We're not righteous or good in and of ourselves. We tend to diverge from the image of God that we are created in. 
who here hasn't become complacent or idolatrous or presumed on the kindness of God and taken advantage and used blessings from God to sin? Who here has not been deceptive in order to get their own way, maybe at the disadvantage of others? We've all sinned. We, we look at Israel in these judgments, and as we've done in class, we can see ourselves. On, on some level, we have committed the same types of sins as Israel. And to us, as well as Israel, God says, Repent. And humble yourself and seek after God and seek after righteousness. Israel was not ashamed. They were shameless. Are we ashamed of our sin? Do we feel the significance of the sins that we've committed as those around us have committed sins, do we look at them and think, well, well, they're doing it and, and it's, it's, it's okay for me to do it, right? Because they're doing it. I'm not worse than them. We can find a way, as Israel did, to justify doing the same sins as the nations around us. But we're supposed to learn from Israel. As Israel was supposed to learn from the nations around them, we're supposed to learn from Israel. Israel in Acts 2 saw God's plan, saw the the redemption that was offered through Jesus, and their heart was pricked by that. And they recognized that they are the ones who, who required the death of an innocent man to remove their sins. And it pricked their hearts to know that they are guilty. They are worthy of punishment. But God loved them enough to allow them to turn to Him and seek after Him and be forgiven. Will we seek after Him and be forgiven? That's the main question we get as we study the prophets and we read all these judgments. Will we look at the judgment and think, wow, I really need to change because I'm just like them. And will we turn our hearts to God? to seek after Him so that we can be purified and then call on His name and worship Him. That's the option for each and every one of us. The second thing we learn is that God is showing us who we are supposed to be. The prophets challenge us to become God's restored people. It gives us an image of the people that God wants in His kingdom, that God wants to bring home with Him. And the question for us is, are we working toward that? Are we being challenged to make changes in our lives, to to be transformed as we pointed out God said His people would be? After condemnation produces humility in us, We receive grace. And that grace that we receive that we didn't deserve transforms us into a holy nation. That's what it was supposed to do for Israel, right? You remember we studied in Exodus. We bring it up multiple times. Israel failed miserably in creating this golden calf. They were humble. 
And they turn back to God. And God is full of love and compassion and mercy. And He forgives in order to allow for them to to be with Him and for Him to be with the people. And they were supposed to learn from that to become a holy nation for all the other nations of the earth to see. That's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be transformed. Notice where the transformation starts. The mouth, right? The the mouth is what He points to. He will purify the lips. He will stop us. We won't be deceived deceiving people anymore. We won't be lying anymore. There won't be corruption out of our mouth. And and we've learned from other studies in the New Testament that what comes out of the mouth flows from the heart. The heart is corrupt, therefore the mouth speaks corruption. So this is an indication that God is purifying our hearts and it's being seen in the way that we speak. Our words are intertwined with our actions. And the type of people that we are, God's challenge for us is to be a people of pure lips that stems from a pure heart. We talked about in James how the tongue is able to navigate our lives. The type of people we are has a lot to do with what we have used our tongue to to go into, to to perform in this life. The opportunities that are given to us are, in large part, the result of what we say and how we speak. In Ephesians, Paul says, the sexual immorality, uh, chapter 5, verse 3, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." So whenever we look at this text, and texts like it, we see that the way that we speak, right, foolish talk and crude talking, is intermixed with sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry. All of these sins are mixed together, and they're all stemming from a a heart that's corrupt. A heart that doesn't seek after God, but that seeks after its own pleasure. God says that what's proper among saints is no sexual immorality, no foolish talking, no crude talking or joking, but a pure speech. Our mouth and our hearts are supposed to be changed and transformed. Children of God must purify themselves as God Himself is pure. First John tells us that. In First John chapter three, verse six, it says, No one abides in him who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. God expects from us perfection. He expects perfection. 
What are we going to do with that? I mean, we look at this and we read these verses and we're always perplexed. At least I am. I look at that and I'm perplexed because I'm not there. There's, Brent mentioned it this morning. There's always a need for God to be forgiving toward us. There's always something that we need to overcome, some sins in our lives that we're supposed to be purifying ourselves of. But whenever we read this restoration language, we see that God's goal for our lives is to be pure people, to be holy, to be righteous, to be good, to be the kind of people who seek after righteousness. We need help. Whenever we go back to Zephaniah, and we look back at verse 9 of chapter 3, I want you to notice that it says, I will. I will change their speech to a pure speech. All of the overwhelmingness of being pure and being righteous and being good, all the pressure that we place on ourselves, is removed by those two words. I will. God says He will purify our hearts. He will give us a heart of flesh. He will be the one who purifies our lips. The text tells us that God is working in us to create perfection, to create restoration. That's the encouraging part of this. God is working in us. So now think for a second. However many years you've been a Christian, however far you've come in overcoming sin, who is it that is responsible for that? Who is it that worked in you to bring about that transformation? Essentially, God is. God is the one who has worked to bring about that transformation in all of us. He's not just sitting on the sidelines saying, I hope you make it, Casey. I hope you can pass the test. I hope you can stop sinning that sin because if you don't, there's wrath coming. I'm going to get you. He's wanting to help us along the way. And He's trying to help us. We looked at Zephaniah and saw Him trying to help Israel. He's wiping out their enemies for sinning, showing Israel, no, you don't want to be like that. He's blessing Israel and staying with them and faithful to them, hoping they will turn to Him. And that's what He does for us. He stays with us. He's faithful. Even though we're faithless, He wants to help us along the way. He wants us to turn our hearts back to Him if we go into practicing sin. To seek Him with humility. To seek after righteousness. And to show that we desire for His will to be accomplished on earth. That is the challenge of the prophets for us. But there's something else in this text that that blows my mind. When we read this text, we find some of the most encouraging words in Scripture. He doesn't just condemn us and humble us. He doesn't just challenge us to be better people. He encourages us 
to rejoice without fear because He loves us. Notice that He commands us to sing. He commands us to sing and to rejoice with all our hearts. We have no fear, we can just sing. What does that look like? As God's people, we are encouraged to sing without any inhibitions. Has has anybody here ever sang in your car? Have you ever sang a song that you just feel all the words, right? You love that song. That song has meaning for you in your life. Maybe it's about your significant other or something. And and maybe you just feel overwhelmed by it. You're just pouring your heart out, right? You may have tears streaming down your face. Maybe it's Celine Dion or something. I don't know. And you're just, you're just, you're letting it go, right? Elsa, let it go. And you're stopped at a red light and you look over and somebody's laughing at you, right? But you didn't care, right? That's all that you cared about was just the words of the song. You were pouring out your heart. That's what God encourages us to do. To sing and rejoice with all of our hearts. The words that are used here remind us of the sporting event where your team is about to lose, but something happens at the last second, and there's a turnaround, and your team scores, and everybody's standing up shouting victory, shouting for joy, overwhelmed. There's no feeling like it, right? You feel the weight of the excitement of it. And then you go and try to tell that to somebody else and they don't get it, right? But you feel it. God wants us to feel the weight of what He's done for us. To be encouraged by His expression of love for us. To just let it out in singing and rejoicing. Notice what this text tells us. This is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. In Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let that sink in for a second. Who is it that's singing in that text? God is. God is rejoicing and singing over the remnant that has turned to Him. Can you even imagine God singing over those who were just guilty and worthy of judgment and condemnation, who turn to Him, who seek after Him? He is singing about that. He loves that. He loves that person. And He is singing and rejoicing over their love for Him. But there's something else there. It it doesn't just say that that He will exult, that He will rejoice with gladness and exult over you with loud singing. The ESV translates it, He will quiet you by His love. And maybe that's the correct translation. But I like a different way of looking at this. Motyer, one of the commentators said that the change from feeling to ministry, saying God rejoices over you with gladness and exalts over you with loud singing, but then saying He will quiet you by His love. Quiet you by His love would sound like ministry. 
So the, the transition from feeling to ministry would be intrusive and destroy the balance. A natural progression from feeling of joy to the silence of adoration to vocal exaltation. This way of looking at the text makes sense to me. God feels excited. He's rejoicing in His feelings, in His love for the fact that we turn to Him. Then He looks at us. The way that we might look at our child. The way that we might look at our spouse. If you're not looking at your spouse this way, you're doing it wrong. The way that you look at them and you treasure them. You're not thinking about the dirty diapers. You're not thinking about the temper tantrums. You're not thinking about the spat you may have had. You look at them and you adore them. Because of who they are. Because of what they mean to you. Because you love them. This text tells us that that's how God feels toward us. He has that feeling of rejoicing with gladness. He adores us quietly. And then He lets out song and exulting over us. What a picture that is for us. God loves us with singing, with adoring, and with rejoicing. What a beautiful image of our God. It's not as though God is worshiping us. But it's as though God loves us and treasures us. As we would treasure a child. So what do we get from Zephaniah and the prophets? We've studied through the, the book of Zephaniah. And I told you at the beginning, this is kind of a good summary book of the prophets. It tells us a lot about the things that are in the prophets. So the prophets give us a lot more details and a lot more information about things. There's a lot in this book that helps us understand judgment and hope. And to be encouraged by the judgment of God, but also to be encouraged by the hope that He offers. We all know now that we can escape judgment. We can escape shame for the sins that we've committed in the past. If we humbly submit to God, if we seek after Him, we can find peace, we can find joy, we can find hope, and we can find rest in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies. He's the one who brings us the opportunity to be right with God, to have our judgments removed, to be forgiven of our sins. He is the one who gives us the opportunity to have a, re- a relationship with God where we can call Him our Father. We need to begin the process of being restored to God. Right now. We all have a lot of work to do. And God's going to be the one who does the work through us. To help us along the way. The longer we serve Him. The more opportunities we have. To show our love back for Him. As He loves us. One day He will bring us home. To be with Him for all eternity. And He will show us that love. That He talks about in scriptures. And we'll get to experience that. If you're not a Christian, then your hope is in nothing. It's in the things that are temporary. It's in the things that are fleeting. 
All those hopes and dreams that you may have in this life, they will be brought to nothing at the end. They may be brought to nothing in this life. But this is a hope that will last for all eternity. And you can take hold of it. God offers it freely for those who are willing to turn to Him and seek after Him. If you need to make the change, please come as we stand and as we sing.